I'd like you to think of a time when you receive your paycheck. Now, I know that not everyone here necessarily receives a paycheck on a regular basis at this point for various reasons. So if you don't currently receive a paycheck, think of um, hypothetically when you might be able to receive a paycheck. And I know that different people receive paychecks at different times and in different ways. Some people get a, a physical copy of a, a, a paper check that is handed to them on a regular basis. Uh, some people uh, get it mailed to them. Some people get their paycheck directly deposited into their checking account on a regular basis. Now, those different forms and different ways of getting paychecks are kind of irrelevant for our topic this morning. Uh, but the topic is, think about that time when you get a paycheck. And here's the question associated with it. How much of the money represented in that paycheck is really yours? How much of the money in your paycheck is really yours? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, some of you are thinking, well, some of it goes to taxes, so it goes to the government. And I'm talking about after taxes, your net paycheck, how much is yours? Some others may be thinking jokingly, well, none of it's really mine because I take it home and give it to my spouse and my spouse spends it all. That's not what I'm talking about either. I'm talking about, in reality, how much of that paycheck is really yours, ultimately speaking? I would say that the way that we answer that question, the way we live out that reality of how much of that paycheck is truly ours to do with what we want, that really reflects a lot on the type of relationship that we have with Christ. Come back to that in just a moment. As a way of illustrating where we're going this morning, let me share, share with you a story from our own household. Uh, a couple of months ago, Micaiah learned a new word. The word is mine. It quickly became his favorite word of all. Uh, it, it wreaked havoc on any sort of social setting that we had, especially when there were other kids around. He kept asserting his ownership over everything that was in sight, even if things weren't, didn't even belong to him at all. Weren't they, if, if another kid brought something over, or if we were here at church, he would still assert that everything is mine. I mean, it even got to kind of a ridiculous point one day. We were having a meal together, and his stuffed cat, um, uh, just a stuffed animal's favorite cat, was sitting up on the countertop in our kitchen uh, where she usually sits to watch us eat. Uh, she's just kind of entertaining up there and motivates Micaiah to eat. Well, one day, he kind of, Micaiah kind of cast a jealous eye over there at Cat because he was very concerned that Cat might eat his bowl of food, which is also up there on the counter. And so he said, no, cat, mine. No, eat Micaiah's food. I mean, he said that. He was asserting his own ownership over his food. Jealous that his stuffed cat may happen to eat his food. And so Shelley and I recognize we can't let him continue to go through life saying, mine, 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 over every single thing in life. It's not really a good habit to get into, and especially to carry that into adulthood. And it's not even a good way to make friends when you're two and a half. So, so we did everything we could to help him learn how to share. We talked about sharing. We talked about how, you know, when people, when you share with people, it makes them happy. When you don't share with people, they aren't very happy. Uh, think about how, how nice it is when people share with you. That really didn't appeal to him very much. So we prayed for him that he would be able to share more. But he didn't really like those prayers either. When we'd be praying for him that he would share, he would oftentimes interrupt us and say, No! No share! He didn't want to share at all. And so then Shelley had the wise idea of getting some books from the library about sharing. And I think these, these books, along with the prayers, finally began to break his shell of his sense of ownership over absolutely everything. Because finally, a couple of weeks ago, he began learning how to share. 
And now he's actually quite proud of being able to share. He, he shares with joy oftentimes. He's not perfect. He still has probably uh, 15 to 20 percent of the time that he doesn't do a good job of sharing. But in general now, he is very good at sharing. And he does it with joy and, and with pride. And I attribute a lot of this again to the prayers that we prayed for him and to the books that demonstrated how it's good to share. Now I want to come back to that question of our, our paycheck. How much of that paycheck is ultimately ours? I think we have a tendency uh, with money, with possessions, with almost everything else that we have in life to assert our ownership over it, to say, you know, it's mine. I worked for it. My name is actually literally on that paycheck. I can do with it whatever I want to do. I have that freedom. But I would say if we look at the Bible, and look, at, and look at God's book, and see what he has to say about our ownership over things, I think that we'll see very clearly that, that God, according to the Bible, asserts ownership over everything. And that's his rightful spot. And that everything we have, whether it's money, or possessions, or time, or gifts and talents, everything we have is on loan to us. And we are called to use these things responsibly, to partly to take care of our own needs, and, and to... Have a good time, but also to help extend God's kingdom in this world. This morning I want to talk about God's perspective on our use of money in our lives. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Today we're nearing the end of our Follower Apps series. Follower Apps is all about how we can make practical application points to our lives to help us grow as followers of Jesus Christ. And I think this topic of money is one of the most practical things we can ever talk about because we all deal with money practically on a daily basis in some form or another. And the Bible has a lot to say about how we utilize our finances. And so, as we prepare to look into God's book uh, to see how he would have us uh, utilize our finances, uh, will you please pray with me? Um, because just as we learned with Micaiah, books and prayer are helpful. Same with us. God's book and prayer, my prayer is that well, these things will be helpful for us and how we utilize our own money as well. So let's pray. Lord, this morning we pray that you will be our teacher, uh, that you will show us how we ought to view our finances, how we ought to use our finances in a way that honors you. Please guide us this morning. Lord, help us to not just follow the culture's view of things and the culture's view of the way we should live our lives. Help us to follow your view, Lord, for we know that your ways are true, that your ways bring life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read from James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. James, uh, he, once again, he doesn't sugarcoat anything. He says, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen uh, who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Now, as we've seen throughout the book of James, James definitely doesn't sugarcoat anything. He doesn't pull any punches. He just lays things right out there 
as he sees them and as, as God directs him. He's, he's basically functioning here as a prophet and, and, and calling people to repentance and turning back to God. Now, I want to make a couple of preliminary comments about this passage before we really dive into it. These comments will, I think, help us understand and apply it to our lives. First comment is this. James, in this passage, was originally addressing people primarily who are outside of the church. He's addressing people who are primarily outside of the church. You see, in that culture, majority of Christians were very, very poor. In fact, majority of the Roman Empire was very poor. You'd have a few very wealthy landowners who controlled vast majority of the land, vast majority of the commerce, and then you'd have the vast majority of the population of the Roman Empire who was incredibly poor. And so, so these people who James is writing to are not, in general, the people who are in the church. They're the, they're the wealthy landowners. We even see that later in this passage, speaking of the workmen who are working in your fields. These are the landowners. Then we look at the broader context of the book of James and see that typically when he's referring to rich people, he's referring to people outside of the church. For instance, back in chapter 2, He's talking to the Christians in the church, and he's talking in reference to these rich people, and he says, Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? And so these people who James is addressing in, in, cha- in the beginning of chapter 5 are primarily people outside of the church who are the rich oppressors, the rich rulers uh, of the society, and, and I think he's addressing these people to help put into context the, the, the trials and the challenges that the poorer people within the church are facing. Now, when we see this passage and we hear about how, you know, it's addressed primarily to people outside the church, James starts off and says, now listen, you rich people. We hear that and think, okay, this really doesn't apply to me then. I could just close my Bible now and leave, and uh, I don't need to really hear what's here. But I would say that in reality, we do need to hear what is here. We may think, well, we're really not that rich. You look at people like the Bill Gates and the Warren Buffetts, look at the professional athletes, look at people who own large corporations, even here in this area. They're the rich people. They're the ones who have a lot. But in, in terms of, of thinking about riches and poverty, it's really all relative, and it depends on who we are comparing ourselves with. Yeah, when we compare ourselves with the Bill Gates and the professional athletes who have multiple mansions and drive Bentleys and Ferraris, yeah, we definitely aren't rich compared to them. But compared to the rest of the world, we're filthy rich. You know that over half the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. If you take the median income of Americans, the average American lives on over $120 a day if you average the average income over 365 days. I invite you to go to most other countries around the world, talk with someone who's trying to live on $2 a day or less, which is over half the world's population, and try to convince them that you or me living on $120 plus a day are not rich. You know that if you make $25,000 a year, you are richer than 90% of the people in the world. And if you make more than $50,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of the world in terms of wealth. Americans are incredibly wealthy. We live in an incredibly consumeristic society. And so this passage, as it's talking to people who have significant financial means, applies to pretty much all of us. And so we we need to hear what James has to say here. 
The main point of this passage that James is communicating to them then and to us now is that we should not let the pursuit of financial riches lead us into spiritual poverty. We shouldn't let the pursuit of financial riches lead us into spiritual poverty. And in the Bible, there's oftentimes an inverse relationship between the more money you have, the more money you are trying to seek, a love of money leads to a less of a healthy spiritual life. Now, it's not a one-to-one correlation all the time, but that's the general correlation you see is the more someone pursues getting more and more money, the less healthy their walk with God is. We do live in an incredibly prosperous culture. In fact, the most financially prosperous culture in world history. Every day we are bombarded with messages that proclaim a consumeristic mindset. There was a study done a few years ago on incoming college freshmen, 220,000 of them in fact, just to rate what are their main values in life. They found that the number one value of incoming college freshmen is wanting to be financially successful. That rated higher than having a family, higher than helping people who are in need, higher than living with a, a meaningful philosophy of life. The number, number one value among incoming college freshmen just a couple years ago was being financially successful. You compare this with a similar survey that was taken back in 1969 of incoming college freshmen. Then it found that only about 42% of college freshmen then rated being financially successful as one of their top values. Then the top value far and away was living with a meaningful philosophy of life. Now, now that's very low on the list of the priorities for college freshmen. I've heard it said that if you want to talk with an American about consumerism, it's kind of like talking with a fish about water. Because uh, with consumerism for us is like water for fish. That's the environment that we live in. Uh, we can talk about consumerism and we can kind of understand it, but at the same time, it's really hard to have an objective view of our consumeristic, financially driven culture when we have grown up in the midst of this culture. But James here in this passage is directly confronting this consumeristic mindset that says financial gain is the most important thing of all. Today I want to look at two, two perspectives on how, how a pursuit of financial riches can lead us into spiritual poverty. And the first thing is that we need to understand that the pursuit of financial riches can pull our heart towards empty treasure. Look with me at the beginning of this passage that we're looking at. It says, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. When you see in Scripture this, this phrase of weep and wail, it's talking about some sort of significant loss that someone is about to experience. And the significant loss is a loss of the things that these people, these rich people, have been putting their identity in for so long. He says, look, misery is going to come upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. He's talking figuratively about what's going to happen soon in the future for these rich people. They've put a lot of their identity, a lot of their sense of meaning and purpose in life and their wealth. Their wealth soon is not going to matter anymore. Their clothing, which uh, clothing then as now can be seen as a status symbol, their clothing figuratively speaking, is going to be eaten by moths. It's not going to account for anything good anymore. He says, your gold and silver are corroded. Now, if you know much about metals, you know that gold and silver can't literally corrode or rust. But again, this is a figurative way of saying that gold and silver, which people put so much emphasis on, is going to be meaningless 
at some point in the future. It's an empty treasure that if you put your heart on gaining these things, ultimately you're going to be let down. It says that these things, your, their corrosion will testify against you and will eat your flesh like fire. This is talking about the judgment uh, when we're standing before God and have to give an account for our lives. If we have put all of our hope in our wealth, in our financial well-being, in our possessions, that's like seeking an empty treasure and we're going to be let down. Some of you may be aware of a TV show that was on back in the middle of the 1980s, uh, hosted by uh, Geraldo Rivera. Uh, it was on the opening of Al Capone's vault under the Lexington Hotel in Chicago. This is, at that point, the most viewed syndicated television program in TV history. 30 million Americans watched live as Geraldo was, was doing this TV special about the opening of the secret vault. You see, they were doing some major renovations on this hotel in, in Chicago. And Al Capone was a famous uh, mobster back in the 1920s, 1930s in Chicago. He had a ton of money. Um, they expected in the secret vault that they found under this, this hotel to find amazing riches and probably to also find some dead bodies. And to prepare for this, they had a medical examiner right there to, to examine any of the dead bodies they found. They had a member of, uh, of the IRS there to collect on the back taxes that Al Capone owed. And there was a ton of buildup for this. Like I said, 30 million Americans are watching live to see what is going to be in this vault when it is opened up. And Geraldo Rivera was, uh, was really sticking a ton of his credibility and his future in what was going to be inside of that vault. You may, if you don't know the story, you can probably guess where I'm headed with this. They opened up the vault. All that was there were some piles of dirt and some empty bottles. Incredible letdown. There had been so much buildup. They thought there was going to be great treasure in there and, and great finds. They would just be amazing. But then incredible letdown. It was an empty treasure. I think that sort of buildup and then letdown is the same thing that people who put their hope in riches and in their possessions, it's that same type of letdown that these people are going to experience when their life on this earth is done, if not before. Because if we pursue uh, financial riches and financial gain, if we set our heart in those things, it's ultimately going to pull our heart towards an empty treasure that can never satisfy us. James says at the end of verse 3, You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Last days refers to the, the time leading up to the time of Jesus' return. It's really been the last days since the time that Jesus was resurrected until today. And it will continue to be the last days until Jesus returns. We know that at some point, Jesus will come back and we're going to have to give an account for our lives. And James is saying it makes no sense to hoard wealth when we're going to have to stand before the great judge and give an account for our lives. I think that hoarding wealth is kind of like if you're on that Titanic when it's sinking and you see there's all this treasure there and you're trying to gather it for yourself. I mean, imagine that. You're on the Titanic. People are jumping into lifeboats. You see a bunch of people's rooms open. You see jewelry in their rooms. You see money scattered around. You see all this fine china that's on the Titanic. And you think, man, all this is there for the taking. I'm going to be rich. And you go, you run around the, the Titanic as it's going down and you're grabbing, grabbing armfuls of stuff. You think, I've never held this much money in my hands in my life. But then you end up going down with it. Yeah, you have a lot of money, but in the end it doesn't matter. And that's a picture of what it's like to try to hoard wealth or to set your heart on financial riches when we live in a world that is dying 
when we live in light of an eternal judgment. If you were here last week, you remember that we used this illustration of the line and the dot, where this broomstick, figuratively speaking, represents eternity, that it goes on forever in that direction and infinitely far in that direction. That represents eternity. Our lives in live eternity are represented by this little dot right here. If you think of this broomstick as being infinitely long in each direction, representing eternity, our 60, 70, 80 years in this earth are quite small. We need to recognize that wealth, financial wealth, our possessions are one of those things that in and of themselves are confined to this little dot, confined to life on this earth, unless we find a way to invest our finances and our possessions in eternity. We'll talk about that in a few moments. We need to recognize that if we are simply living uh, for financial riches that only benefit us here in this world, the, the, the effect of those things are confined to this lifetime. And that's an that's incredible loss when you consider the fact that we are eternal beings who will live forever. A number of years ago, Shelley and I saw, um, we, we saw an exhibit of an ancient Bulgarian king. He lived before the time of Christ. And this exhibit was very eye-opening and and a great reminder of the fact that our wealth does not go with us after we die. See this picture? It's kind of a jarring picture if you can see it. It's the picture of the skeleton um, of this ancient king. He has a lot of these gold uh, bracelets and bands around his arms. He has this massive gold medallion. Uh, That was probably a sort of necklace. He had these gold uh, emblems that went up around his head. There are gold coins scattered all throughout there. He left it all behind. The wealth doesn't go with you into eternity. That's what it's like, though, if you try to invest all of your energy into gaining financial riches in this life. And we think about the words of Jesus when he said, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? I think of Jesus uh, in, this, in this idea of, of moths eating clothing and, and uh, the riches wearing out. I think of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's saying that if we set our hearts on following financial riches that are only confined to this world and to the pleasures of this world, yeah, they may be very enticing, but ultimately that's a treasure that's going to be empty and going to be gone. He's saying instead, invest your energy and your time and even your finances and your possessions in something that's going to last for eternity so that then you will have treasure in heaven. He goes on a couple of verses later in Matthew 6, verse 24, and says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he very specifically says, you cannot serve both God and money. The the Greek word for money here is a word that talks about love for money. If you you try to follow both the love for money and the love for God, it's going to be like trying to serve two masters that are pulling you in opposite directions. We have to make up our mind, do we want to pursue financial riches or do we want to pursue God? Because most of the time, 
those things are going to be, be fairly mutually exclusive. It's not saying that we can't have uh, finances, that they're inherently bad. But it's saying that if we set our heart on getting, having uh, financial riches, if that's where our main heart and energy goes, it's going to end up pulling us away from God because it's pursuing an empty treasure. Now that's the first uh, reason why a pursuit of financial riches can pull us away from God. The second reason, which is shown in this passage, is that the pursuit of financial riches eats away at our love for other people. James, uh, in verse 4, says, Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Now, we see in this passage, again, this is a reference to these rich, uh, wealthy uh, landowners who, who had a lot of different employees. They would oftentimes mistreat them and, and underpay them in order to secure more financial riches for themselves. And it says even at the end, you've condemned and murdered innocent men. Now, we don't know the exact thing that James is referring to here. I think some of it might be figurative, especially in that murder type thing. Um, in terms of just you really beat them down um, because you're pursuing your own financial gain. Uh, It's probably also talking about how a number of the people who worked for these wealthy landowners actually starved to death because they were not paid enough in order to buy food for their family. And I'm sure that there were times as well where these wealthy landowners intentionally did murder uh, or have murdered people around them because they were fearful of what these people may do if they exposed these wealthy landowners on their unethical practices, if they had information that would look bad for them, or if, or if these other people were just getting too powerful and threatening them, it's very possible that these wealthy landowners could have had some of these other people around them put to death. Now you may be thinking, well, how can the pursuit of money really cause me to love others less? I think one of the keys is in verse 5 when it says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. This is really when people have their hearts set on financial gain, on being rich and being financially successful, a lot of it has to do with the desire to live in luxury, to have the best things that money can buy. And it's driven out of a desire for self-indulgence. It's prioritizing what we want rather than what other people want. And as we prioritize what we want, as we pursue financial gain and pursue more and more possessions, as we pursue higher paying jobs in order to buy a better lifestyle, what ends up happening is that our focus, as it turns towards our financial gain, it turns towards ourselves, and our focus is not as much on other people and how we can love and serve them. There is a story, um, actually, just this year, in the Boston Globe. It was back in February of 2012. Um, it was a story on how money really does change the way that we treat other people around us. The, the thesis question in the story was, does money change you? And at the beginning of the story, the author wrote, here in the home of the American dream, most people are convinced that gaining a lot of money won't change who they are as people. And so the article set out to look at some recent research that answers whether or not that is true. And I want to read to you a portion of what this article says. It says, As a mounting body of research is showing, wealth can actually change how we think and behave, and not for the better. Rich people have a harder time connecting with others, showing less empathy to the extent of dehumanizing those who are different from them. They are less charitable and generous, 
They are less likely, likely to help someone in trouble, and they are more likely to defend, to defend an unfair status quo. If you think you'd behave differently in their place, meanwhile, you're probably wrong. These aren't just inherited traits, but developed ones. Money, in other words, changes who you are. And then a little bit later in this article, the author referred to another recent study um, that, was, that took place at the University of Minnesota that, that studied a technique called priming, which is telling people that they're about to experience significant financial gain. And the study done by the University of Minnesota even found out that even when people have the prospect of financial gain, they don't actually have the money in hand yet, but they're just anticipating it. It already begins to affect the way that they treat those around them. I was reading uh, another uh, book recently that, that pointed to several different studies on financial stewardship within churches. And you oftentimes hear the excuse of, well, if I just made a little bit more money, I'd be able to give more. But study after study has shown that the more money people make, the less proportionally they give to charitable causes. That, that generally people who make less money give a higher proportion of their income than people who make more money. What happens is that if we set our hearts on being rich and on gaining more and more possessions, oftentimes that gives us a self-focus that pulls our eyes off of how we can serve and help those around us. I think the ultimate issue here isn't how much money we have. And the Bible doesn't make a blanket condemnation of rich people in general. What the Bible is focused on is how we use our money and what our attitude is towards our money. Jesus did very clearly say that it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say it's impossible, but it's hard because if our hearts are set on our riches and our money and our possessions, we end up putting our dependence in those things rather than in God. And for that reason, it's hard for a person to have a, have a healthy relationship with God and with Christ when their heart is set on financial riches. So we need to make sure that we don't let the pursuit of financial riches lead us into spiritual poverty. As I said, this primarily has to do with how we view finances and how we use finances in our lives. And in closing today, I want to give us three practical steps that we can take to help us invest our finances in eternity and not just have them die with us as an empty treasure in this earth. The first practical thing that we can do to help change our perspective on our finances, to have an eternal perspective, is simply to study this topic in Scripture. As I said with Micaiah, he learned how to share when he began to study books and read books on sharing. I think it's the same for us, that if we don't have God's picture and God's blueprint for how, how we should view and use finances there's no way that we're really going to be able to honor God with those finances. So we need to study what Scripture has to say about finances. And, and really, it's not hard to find passages about this. Jesus talked more about money than about any other topic. Now, you may still be wondering, okay, where could I really start with this? I want to be able to give you a resource that you can use. All it is is a list of passages of Scripture that, that lists places you can start if you want to study more about what the Bible has to say about finances. And if you'd like this list of passages, uh, on the back of your connection card, I invite you just to write something like uh, money passages or anything like that. And if your name is on the front, especially with an email address or something like that, uh, this week I'd love to be able to get into your hands a list of passages that will give you a starting point in Scripture 
of what God's perspective on finances is. Um, again, his main focus is how we use money and how we view it. I mean, he's not as focused on how much do we have because even someone who has very little can still be greedy and want to hoard it for themselves. So studying these passages is a great way to start. And then the second step in the process is to give. It's amazing how when we give to other people, to causes that benefit God's kingdom, it really loosens our grip on our finances. It, it stops us from being as adamant about saying, mine, 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 and it allows us to share with others around us. A couple of the main ways that the Scripture tells us that we should give, it says, give to those who are in need. The Scripture also tells us to give to, to Christian causes that will help extend the gospel. Because as we do that, especially investing in the local church, investing in other missions work and other things, Christian causes, we are investing in eternity. We're storing up treasures in heaven as we give away our earthly treasures that will ultimately not go with us past this lifetime. I read a story recently by Richard Stearns. Uh, Richard Stearns is the president of a Christian agency called World Vision. World Vision gives a lot of humanitarian uh, work and relief around the world. Richard Stearns was telling a story about how back in 1987 uh, there was a major stock market crash. He said it's the biggest stock market crash up to that point that had taken place since the Great Depression started in 1929. And in that one day, the Stearns family lost one-third of all of their investments. They'd been saving money for retirement. They'd been saving money for their children's college education and just saving money in general just to be fairly financially secure. And that one day... They lost one-third of all of their life savings. And he said he was just in despair at that point. He, he had many sleepless nights after that, just staying up late, looking over spreadsheets, trying to figure out what do you do to remake all that money that you lost. And he said one night as he, as he was burning the midnight oil, his wife came in to him in their study and said, Honey, this thing is consuming you in an unhealthy way. It's only money. We have our marriage, our health, our friends, our children, and good income. So much to be thankful for. You need to let go of this and trust God. And so she was calling him to, to release this idol of his financial uh, security. And then she suggested that they pray about it. And he said, you know, up to that point, I really hadn't prayed much about this. I'd been trying to crunch the numbers, trying to f figure out what to do. I hadn't prayed much about it yet. So he said they prayed. And then after they prayed, his wife turned to him. And, and told him something that, that completely confused him and threw him off kilter. His wife said, you know, now I think we need to get out the checkbook and write some big checks to our church and the ministries we support. We need to show God and ourselves that we know that this is his money and not ours. And he said that as soon as he did that, he, and as soon as he put those checks in envelopes, he felt a huge wave of relief coming over him. Because giving was a, a tremendous reminder to him of the fact that it's not his in the first place. It's God's. And he's releasing it for use in God's kingdom rather than trying to keep it all for himself and controlling it all himself. That's what giving does. It releases our idolization of money and enables our finances to be invested in something that will have eternal value. So we need to study about this topic. We need to give. And thirdly, we just need to love Jesus. You may think, okay, that sounds pretty cliche. We're in a church. Yeah, granted, you'll say that. But I'm, I'm serious in this. Because oftentimes when we set our hearts 
on making more money. When we set our hearts on getting newer and nicer things, we're trying to fill some sort of void in our heart that feels like if we get more stuff and get more money and get more financial security, then we will have a greater sense of meaning and purpose and identity and security in life. There's a void in our hearts that we're trying to fill with that stuff. Oftentimes, uh, these things we're pursuing don't fulfill us because they're empty treasures. The, the only, only thing in, in this world that can fulfill that void in our heart that we try to fill with money or with possessions or even with popularity or, or fame or power, Jesus is the only one who can ultimately fill that void. I think of Jesus' words, or not Jesus, but Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3, when he said that whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He looked at his credentials that he had. He looked at the money he had. He looked at the training and the education he had, the fame that he used to have. He said, you know what? All that is lost because now I know Christ. And he is more than enough for me. He fills that void that I was trying, trying to fill in other ways before. You know, ultimately, Jesus cares about our heart. He doesn't want, our, want to see, uh, see our heart pursuing other things that won't ultimately fulfill us. He wants us to be fully committed to him. And he wants us to be living for things that matter in light of eternity and don't just matter here in this lifetime. So one of the best ways that we can apply follower principles to our lives is to examine how do we use our finances? Do we view them just as our own or view them ultimately as God's entrusted to us to use for a greater, more eternal purpose? Jesus is asking us to pursue spiritual riches that come from investing in the things that ultimately matter, which is our relationship with him and other people, and to use our finances toward those ends. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we recognize that we are eternal, that you are eternal, that your word is eternal, that other people around us are eternal. But we recognize that it is so easy for us to invest our lives in things that are not eternal, including in, in finances and then in possessions and so many other things, Lord. I pray that you will help in each one of our hearts to loosen our grip and our idolization of things that don't ultimately matter in light of eternity. Lord, help us not pursue empty treasures, but to pursue the things that matter in light of eternity and use the earthly treasures that we have to invest in eternity. And Lord, now as we give our tithes and our offerings, we, we want to do just that to give back to you a portion of what you've given to us, knowing that everything we have comes from you. But as we give back to you, we do so with the desire to invest in eternity and, and to loosen our grip on finances and the grip that finances have on us. May we worship you alone, Lord. And we do lift up this morning our missionaries, uh, Jerry and Kathy Singh. We pray for them as they are preparing to go on a missions trip to Trinidad in the West Indies. We pray for your success for that missions trip, that you will work through them. To, to bring many people to know you, to turn many people to that ultimate treasure that is Jesus Christ. And we even pray that you will raise the finances they need for that and that you will work through them in powerful ways to point people to Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.